Hello, everybody. This is very exciting uh, to have uh, a monthly gathering to, uh, to have this celebration um, of our research in the STR division. Um, and this month, our special feature is on global strategy. Um, I will share with you in a minute uh, on the various events um, and also as an event uh, advertisement promotion so that you will know um, the sequences uh, of other events leading to our annual conference um, this summer. Um, so let me go ahead uh, and start with a sharing of some introductory slides. Uh, and you get to meet uh, the, uh, the various speakers, our panelists, and all the um, possible ways that you can engage in today's discussion. All right, so first of all, um, hello again, my name is Gwen Lee. This is our Stronger Together virtual <laughs> symposia in 2022. And we are currently in April, very fast approaching towards um, our summer um, 2022 uh, Academy Conference uh, that will be in Seattle. Uh, if you are able to join uh, in person, uh, there is a, a hybrid uh, mode setup. So today we're gathering together to discuss corporate and international strategy. Um, and then later in May, we will have uh, another uh, virtual symposium that is on the theory of the firm and competitive advantage in ecosystems. And later in June, we will have a, a debate. This is uh, a debate uh, that we started this year as a new initiative. Earlier in February, we had a debate on when do market versus non-market strategies help firms. And then in June, we will have a debate on uh, do a um, uh, does a new theory uh, of uh, the international firm, uh, do we need that? Uh, and that's a debate uh, of Barney and Teese on one side versus Buckley and Burbicki on the other side. So do pay attention to these event advertisements. Uh, please visit our STR homepage and follow us via Twitter and Instagram uh, at AOM underscore STR. Um, so for today, um, I would like to uh, um, share with you the theme um, of our presentation. Uh, we have the great fortune of uh, having current and former associate editors and co-editors of Global Strategy Journal uh, to share with us their expertise on what they have learned in the past and especially what they think are the most interesting developments in terms of topics and theories to analyze in the field. And the theme of the discussion will be around how do, should managers guide their firms to address the opportunities and challenges of operating across countries in response to the continuous transformation in the global, geopolitical, technological, and social cultural contexts. So with that, um, I want to uh, have a, a sequence uh, of uh, these uh, clips that have collected. So first of all, uh, this is a gathering of celebration uh, of the community uh, embracing the Global Strategy Journal um, that is uh, edited uh, by Gabriel Benito, uh, Alvaro Grevo Pazura, and Ram Mundabi. And this journal was launched in 20. Um, 11 and the co-editors, the launching founding co-editors um, are Stephen Tallman and uh, Torben Peterson. 
And the Global Strategy Journal is targeted at publishing the most influential, managerially oriented global strategy research in the world. And in 2022, this current year, we have a co-editor search. So do uh, give us your nomination. Um, the deadline of the nomination is May 13th, uh, coming up very quickly. And then also uh, we are happy to celebrate that our current volume is number 12 in year 2022. And I just picked uh, one uh, of uh, the research articles in the current issue. Um, and that is the knowledge-based view and global strategy, past impact and future potential. Uh, the co-authors are Robert Grant and Anufin. Anufin is on the panel with us uh, today. Um, and also I have uh, a little bit uh, of a, um, uh, advertisement to do. Uh, if you go onto a Global Strategy Journal website, there is an early view uh, of special issues and there is a collection. It's called a primer on the topics of E-M-N-E-S, stands for uh, Emerging Market Multinational Enterprises. So um, I also look into um, Global Strategy Journal as a way to look at these uh, collections uh, of uh, the articles and the conversations. So if you haven't had a chance to use that as a source of reading materials, um, I would highly encourage you to do that at the GSJ uh, website. And then so today we have um, uh, a great uh, panelist with us today, the order uh, that I'm going to introduce is the order of the presentation. Uh, first, we will have Re Professor uh, Rihanna Drodrendicht, and uh, excuse uh, my pronunciation, uh, from the Netherlands. And her presentation will be followed by Steve Tallman, um, one of our founding uh, co-editors uh, located in the United States, followed by Anufin, um, currently in India. Uh, and then uh, Ram Mudambi will uh, continue, followed by Dan Lee here um, in Indiana, Uni United States, and uh, Alvaro Crevo-Kazura will uh, be the next speaker, and the uh, final speaker is Gabriel Benito. So we have um, planned about an hour uh, for the panelists uh, to exchange ideas and to spark a conversation. The second half of our symposium today is uh, driven by your participation. So uh, please feel free to send your uh, comments, uh, your ideas, suggestions via the chat. I will be monitoring the chat room um, and uh, help you uh, find a way to engage. Uh, so some of the speakers, if you want to have uh, your uh, video shown, um, uh, just to, to remind you that we are recording the session. Uh, but feel free to let me know. Uh, I'm more than happy to have you uh, to directly participate and not have to go through uh, the moderator myself. All right, so let's uh, get uh, the slides ready from Dion. Take it away anytime you're ready. Yep, thank you, I'm putting them up now. And the presentation mode, yep. Perfect. So yeah, you should, yeah, should be able to see my slides now. Um, thank you for uh, enabling me to stand here and to uh, start this conversation on the past and future of global strategy. And my topic will be the organization of global companies. 
And I've been thinking about this a little bit the past few weeks and thought about a, a number of topics that are part of this, uh, this domain, so to say. And I think one of these topics has its foundations in the work on the M-Form organization, the large multi-business organizational form that we see in a lot of multinational companies. And secondly, related to this topic is the more hierarchical view where headquarters make strategies and subsidiaries would implement strategies uh, that were developed by the headquarters. So this is the foundational work uh, on this part of the, yeah, the organization of global companies. And I think this work evolved to also study new organizational forms. Still quite old work, but think about the network organization where subsidiaries have different kinds of roles and contribute to strategy making. But I'm also thinking about more recent work on micro multinationals. So the not large companies, but still global, uh, global in, their, in terms of their activities. And in this regard, also the changing hierarchies in multinationals are important. And I'm thinking, for example, about how tasks that traditionally were performed by corporate headquarters uh, have now become dispersed throughout the global organization and are taken up by different units, sometimes subsidiaries or let's say regional headquarters or, or something of the kind. So future questions in this regard could be, do size and hierarchy still matter at all for global companies? And if we agree that there are different roles for subsidiaries and headquarters in the global organization, what do their roles look like in terms of how they contribute to strategy making and what kind of new power balances um, do these roles entail? A second topic for me related to the organization of global companies deals with internationalization processes. And this work has its foundation in, let's say the Uppsala model, the kind of work on a gradual expansion, starting uh, for, uh, for, for companies from developed markets and expanding into further and further away markets, including later uh, emerging markets. Now, this work has evolved um, to study also other internationalization patterns I'm thinking, for example, about the work on born globals, um, where companies uh, internationalize faster or are more or less global from the outset, uh, or they skip at least steps in this older gradual uh, pattern that we started out with to, to study in this regard. Uh, but I'm also thinking about how the growing presence of emerging market multinationals has resulted in a lot of work on how these companies show different patterns or maybe similar patterns uh, in terms of how they gradually or less gradually expand abroad. So that is a, a field that has evolved from this uh, foundational work on internationalization. And in terms of future questions, I think this um, domain uh, is related to the question whether location still matters. Think about uh, e-businesses and platform companies, for example, as a, the newest organizational forms in this regard, but also how do new competitive balances between emerging market multinationals and developed market multinationals influence how they internationalize. And some could also say that perhaps for developed market multinationals, um, their home country gains importance because they are asked to bring certain activities home. Uh, whereas for emerging market multinationals, the home country uh, might be important for their internationalization strategies because their government play a role in, uh, plays a role in how they uh, internationalize. Then a third topic 
um, for me is related and uh, or founded on the, in the work on the global and the multi-domestic company where global strategies are based on standardization and multi-domestic strategies are based on adaptation to local circumstances. But all of these strategies were always based on companies growing or companies um, wanting to reach financial profit. And I think um, this kind of work has evolved to also look at new global challenges like climate change, like human rights, sustainability issues, um, which have um, made us look into the increased stakeholder pressures and more diverse stakeholder pressures that make companies look into other strategic goals. And future questions in this regard then are what role do global companies play in solving today's great challenges? And how will they integrate these new strategic goals in their global strategy if they want to play a role in solving these challenges? And I want to share a final thought, I will make it short, uh, which is this, that also in um, looking at these different questions and how our work has evolved over a long time span, I would say that this oldest work, the foundational work, very often was phenomenon driven, very often based on qualitative or case study work. And I think later on, we have evolved into using more quantitative techniques to test hypotheses. I think that's a, quite a natural way uh, for, for research. Uh, and I think also recently or recent decades, I would say, we have improved the analytical techniques, both in terms of qualitative as well as quantitative work. I'm thinking, for example, about multi-level models that enables us to test uh, hypotheses that also um, encompass more uh, levels of analysis. But we could ask ourselves whether sometimes perhaps we have had too much emphasis on making very small contributions based on very much quantitative focused work. And I think the future questions that I have raised here, but I'm sure many of the other panelists future questions will require us to have this renewed focus on understanding the role of context and understanding intra organizational processes and that kind of work or those kind of questions. I think require us to also embrace qualitative or at least mixed methodologies uh, for our research. I would like to stop here. Thank you very much, Leon. Uh, Steve, uh, whenever you're ready. Okay, well, let's see if I can get this to work, which I'm not doing a very good job of right at the moment. Let me see here. Okay, so hopefully we're seeing this. Um, my part of this discussion is about um, the role of cooperative strategies uh, in international strategy uh, with focus on um, really alliances and joint ventures. Um, at least this is what we tend to think of. Uh, in the past, uh, I'll go through this quickly, the, the real focus uh, has been on market entry um, alternatives and looking particularly at alliances and joint ventures as uh, choices that are typically driven by government requirements in the distant past. And then more recently, uh, and I date this really to uh, Contractor and Lorange's book in 1988, uh, researchers began to look at, um, at cooperative 
means of market entry uh, as a consequence of deliberate strategy, as opposed to something driven strictly by government requirements. Um, moving ahead from that, we began to realize that alliances uh, came in different forms and differentiation between contractual alliances and equity joint ventures started to become important. Um, much, uh, and, and this is where we began to also see the um, use of different strategic perspectives. Um, transaction cost models, uh, of course, Bucking and uh, Kasson, uh, Gideon Anderson, Hanart, people like this, uh, have been very popular and continue to be whenever we're looking at um, some sort of governance form. But uh, the use of alliances uh, and joint ventures to coordinate resource development and exploitation, not so much through fear of opportunism by a partner, but simply to improve cooperation and understanding uh, has come to the fore. Uh, more recently, uh, I've been involved in some of this research, uh, both with Anu and other people. And then I think the most recent new approach uh, was the treatment of joint ventures uh, or alliances as real options on markets. Um, Bruce Covet proposed this in, back in the 90s, but it's been pursued uh, to a greater or lesser degree where the focus is uh, on the choice of, of um, alliance as a way of taking a look at a market and kind of developing greater understanding before deciding to uh, make a total commitment. Um, where I think that this has moved today uh, is a focus that's moved away from looking at uh, market-driven um, entry into new areas. A big thing in international strategy right now is probably the tremendous increase in um, global value-adding networks uh, supply chains, various terms have been used for this. But one of the important aspects of this is that we see a tremendous amount of outsourcing. Um, of course, since we're talking international, we're also talking about offshore outsourcing. But, um, and, and as this has developed, one of the things that I feel people who study outsourcing have to a certain extent neglected is that uh, outsourcing typically involves extended contracts and other forms of long-term cooperation, which basically is what we've been studying in cooperative strategies, alliances, and joint ventures for some time. So I think that a key uh, area of study right now is bringing together the work on alliances, joint ventures, and cooperative strategies with the studies of outsourcing. Uh, I think this is also quite relevant to the companies that are, are using this. Um, another area that's becoming more and more important uh, our strategies in the sharing economy, the gig economy, the platform economy, whatever we want to call it, um, which involve a lot of cooperative strategies. The, uh, the uh, platforms, uh, particularly the multinationals, but the, uh, the actual service providers and the, uh, the customers, uh, when they work with the platform, we're typically working in some sort of cooperative fashion. So I think that there's uh, a lot of room to use alliance ideas uh, to develop this. Um, and then finally, uh, knowledge sharing seems to be deeply involved with uh, international uh, cooperative strategies. In fact, uh, many of us think this is really what drives uh, uh, much cooperation is the source, is the search for 
uh, knowledge that's not currently available within the firm and requires some sort of external um, access. Uh, and then looking to the future, and all, all three of those ideas are, are things that are subject to study now, but are, have, clearly have uh, a long way to go before we have conclusive thoughts. Um, as we look to the future, I think that this changing global business environment that uh, uh, Gwen described uh, really is going to make cooperative strategies seem more important. Um, the current geopolitical strains that we see around the world suggest that local identity is going to be very important um, to companies taking part in uh, these somewhat newly isolationist markets. Uh, if we want to continue to, use, to, to take advantage, though, of uh, international networks, uh, scale economies, global brands, and all of this sort of thing, I think that um, this may turn out to be easy, more easily done through cooperation uh, rather than through whole ownership. Uh, the same thing with the uh, platform-driven two-sided markets that I discussed. And then I think that the whole issue of climate change and we see pandemics and other natural disasters or natural disasters enhanced by human uh, mistakes suggests the need that we, the need for organizational slack and redundancies in our supply chains and in our distribution chains, uh, which if handled through vertical integration will be very expensive and very limiting. And this will also reduce flexibility a lot. So again, I think that cooperative strategies and alliance type organizations are gonna become much more important in dealing with this kind of, um, of uh, rapidly changing environment. Uh, another key point I believe is that uh, the development of uh, information tech, which uh, obviously is, is just increasing at, any, at, at a remarkable rate. Um, I think this reduces the value of ownership uh, one in this idea of guarding against opportunism through um, what's been called mutual, mutual hostages, and two uh, in the idea of expediting shared tacit knowledge, which has always been tied a lot to face-to-face uh, -face, um, discussions. I think that we'll find that uh, combination of information technology and relational management uh, concepts that do not necessarily involve ownership um, are going to become more and more important in uh, cooperative arrangements. So I guess what I expect to see and what I hope that uh, some of you all will be able to uh, research over the coming decades is that um, we'll probably see more cooperative networks and probably less cross-border capital investment uh, and more flexibility. And I would uh, kind of summarize this by suggesting that I, I would expect to see more cooperation um, but less equity uh, use of equity joint ventures. And on that note, I will check off. All right, thank you very much, Steve. Um, and uh, Anu, anytime you're ready. Okay, thanks very much, Gwen. Um, and I'm glad to be on this panel with a lot of people that I've worked with as uh, collaborators, but also, uh, you know, at GSJ. 
And interestingly, I know Gwen highlighted this, but uh, when Alvaro asked if I'd be on the panel, um, we just did a paper for Global Strategy Journal on the knowledge-based view, and it was called uh, Past Impact and Future Potential in terms of the intersection of knowledge-based view and global strategy. So I'm gonna heavily draw on that in my presentation, um, particularly in terms of the past and the evolution. And then for the future, uh, I've got a compilation of areas that I will draw. So, um, you know, when I think about sort of these boundaries of knowledge and global strategy, I think about the foundations of this literature, right? And you can see there was a real emphasis on the role of organization-specific knowledge in enabling expansion in the global arena. So we can think about a lot of the foundational work here. So for example, you think of Heimer's early work, right? Which talked about firm-specific advantages, including knowledge. So things like managerial skills and technology in enabling foreign direct investment, allowing firms to go overseas, um, you could also think about Cave's work, uh, you know, when he talked about the multinational enterprise's ability to deploy knowledge overseas without having to incur uh, the sunk costs associated with developing that knowledge in the first place all over again. Uh, you know, uh, I know, I know um, Steve talked about uh, sort of the internalizing argument, and you can think about that in the context of the international uh, arena where Buckley and Casson uh, talked about the benefits of internalizing knowledge transactions within the multinational enterprise. You can also think about knowledge and learning in that overseas context. You can sort of see a shift here in terms of, you know, from the organization specific knowledge, it starts to incorporate more of the global elements of knowledge. So learning about a specific country and how that might fuel better expansion later on, like Johansson and Valmy's work did. And you can see that emphasis in the eclectic paradigm too, right? When Dunning talks about certainly ownership advantages that echo some of the things that I've talked about, but the location advantages in terms of the knowledge benefits that countries might offer. So you can see what happens then in terms of the evolution from this, uh, you know, the foundation that was created for knowledge, where there's a real interest in looking at um, not just how the firm uses this knowledge to go overseas, but how does it really create an organizational capability uh, for the multinational enterprise? And very central to that is the, you know, the last two points that I had about the spatial elements of uh, knowledge. So the location elements that sort of come to the forefront. So here I think about, for example, you know, um, a lot of um, John Dunning's work on technological competence of the multinational that comes as a result of the dispersed locations where there is access to all this knowledge. I think also about, uh, you know, um, this idea of capability that comes from knowledge and the ability not just to source, but exchange uh, Coco and Zander's uh, foundational work on the firm as a social community that enables these exchanges. Um, there's a lot of work then that shifted the focus down to the subsidiary level, right? Um, including Ram's work there with, uh, with John, some of my work on subsidiary capabilities that really came from their connectedness to that host country and from that learning that was then leveraged for the benefit of the multinational enterprise. And then again, you can see the location element explored uh, separately where there's a lot of work on the value of sourcing knowledge 
from uh, different geographic regions because of the benefits in converse for example in some of the work that i've done in terms of breakthrough innovations and also the challenges to accessing some of the spatially dispersed knowledge so steve and i for example have done some work here where we sort of looked into trying to unpack some of the characteristics of knowledge that would um uh, you know prevent it from being much more mobile across uh, uh, across geographic boundaries so I guess I want to spend the most time on the future, right? How can we think about exciting opportunities uh, that exist um, in terms of thinking about knowledge and global strategy, right? So I think foundationally, uh, we have to change our view on how we've thought about knowledge. So I think in the past, we thought about knowledge as something that firms protect, right? And I think the if you look at a lot of the literature, uh, for example, if you look at Oliver Alexie's book on disclosures, uh, there's a shift in thinking on how you can wield knowledge in the global arena for strategic objectives, right? So what do these disclosures do? So some of the ongoing work, for example, that I'm interested in is how can firms use their knowledge to really signal something to someone else, right? So with Steve, we are looking at how can you do it for alliances, to create better alliances, to draw the right kind of partner and to enable that selection. Uh, with another co-author, we are looking at these disclosures in terms of rivals sort of in, uh, following your technological trajectory. And when that signpost is used by a rival and when is it seen um, as something that might dissuade them from pursuing that, uh, that technological trajectory. So I think foundationally, the, what is interesting to me is the shift in thinking about knowledge as something to be protected versus something that you can disclose for your benefit. Um, the second element that I see that as, as really interesting is, you know, um, uh, when Rob and I wrote that paper, we talked about how there's perceptions of knowledge as objective. And I confess that I've always looked as knowledge is very objective because I've looked at patent data, right? And there you can see there's information that's coded that can be used. But there's a social constructionist view of knowledge that suggests that even the information in patent documents may be interpreted in different ways. And here I think, you know, the international arena offers a lot of interesting opportunities for, um, for looking at how context might shape how you perceive this knowledge and how you process this knowledge. So here I think there's lots of neat work in the investor psychology literature, for example, um, by Dan Kamen, who's looked at, you know, how um, attention to different information varies, how there are biases and heuristics that you rely on, such as expert assessments or, you know, biases towards recency. So I think there's opportunities to look at these information processing ideas associated with the organization and the individual that influence our knowledge use. You see that I have an image of a chessboard there. And so if you go back to the work of Simon, there's some interesting work on reasoning processes, right? And um, in that he talks about how chess grandmasters use a chunking process where they rely on chunks of information that put together um, you know, past patterns that they can deploy effectively in a game to really think about what moves their opponent might make. And so I think there's potential for us to really apply that in the context of the form. The last point is really this idea of a multi-level knowledge process, right? So we've talked a little bit in the past about the firm and the subsidiary, but I think there's real opportunity here 
to look at the interaction. So some of the work that I think is interesting, uh, something that uh, Grazia and I have worked on recently, looked at how an individual and a unit may interact to influence a multinational knowledge sourcing. So I think, again, there are opportunities there that we can really pursue um, to explore this area. Um, that's it from me. Thank you. Thank you, Anu. Uh, then we have Rob. And I'm going to ask Ron to unmute. Sorry, thank you very much. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get this eventually. Get this right. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Gwen and Heather, for putting this together and inviting me uh, with uh, with a number of uh, very good friends and colleagues. Uh, I'm very excited to uh, sh share my thoughts on uh, global strategy, looking back and looking forward. Uh, just a quick overview: of my own interests uh, stem from. Uh, uh, examining the role of economic geography uh, on the on innovation, uh, innovation processes, and that sort of informs my view of strategy, and that's what I'm going to try and look at today. Uh, the uh, way I'm going to look at this is rather than pointing to specific articles and specific work like uh, Steve did so masterfully, I'm going to adopt a very uh, 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 approach uh, the. Uh, that John Maynard Keynes used uh, when he wrote his general theory back in the 30s, where he basically he chunked the entire 19th century together as the past. So I'm going to talk about the entire 20th century and say basically going forward where we are. Uh, now, the business environment has changed drastically, in my opinion. And again, this is sort of uh, looking at the, the geography slash innovation view of this. Uh, coordinating business over geograph geographic distance in the 20th century was very costly. It was, it, it, yeah, and uh, today, in the 21st century, we're looking at a situation where it is nearly costless. I mean, in the GSJ, we had a special issue last year. We talked about digitalization, for example, and all these tools are mechanisms. Steve alluded to these as well, uh, and Anu did as well, so did Rian, that ultimately these tools are going to have made dramatic changes in uh, the coordination of business. Uh, yeah, and... Uh, uh, that that is going to have that creates a lot of uh, uh, opportunities for managers that we can study. In the 20th century, production capabilities were were critical. Fairly, especially the high age of the 20th century, mass production, uh, big factories. These were basically the hallmarks of of wealthy countries. Uh, when we go to the 21st century, uh, uh, this is really not, not the case. Innovation capabilities are critical, and we're finding increasingly that these big mass production uh, units are actually uh, things that are not in advanced economies. They tend to actually be in poor economies. <laughs> and uh, connected to that very closely, value was based in the 20th century on mass-produced tangibles. We basically made, you know, uh, one black card, we said sold, sold it to everybody. In the 21st century, on the other hand, we have value creation is based on customized knowledge-based intangibles. So things that you cannot see, touch, and feel are where all the value comes from. Uh, and this is, this is a dramatic change in the environment. And finally, uh, in the international business in, in the 20th century was focused on geopolitical rivals, allies. 
So we looked at, for example, the U.S. and Western Europe or the U.S. and Japan. That's where all the business was done. Mostly international business was between allies. And international politics forced on rivals. So basically the U.S. and the USSR. Not much business there. It was all about missiles and military and politics. On the other hand, the 21st century, international business and international politics are inextricably linked. Uh, we are now in a world where the U.S. and China are, are major geopolitical rivals of the 21st century, as pointed out by, for example, people like David Teese. Uh, but they're also inextricably linked uh, in terms of uh, economics. And now, of course, we're look, looking forward. Again, I'll say a few words about this as well. Uh, whether going forward in the next decade, next two decades, are we going to see a decoupling between the U.S. and China? Is, in other words, is this period of linkage? Is this sort of a period of uh, temporary, temporary, or is it something that we're going to see permanently? Now, these changes in the environment have necessitated, necessitated changes in global strategy. Managers need to react to these changes. And this, in my, my view, has led to three global strategy megatrends. First of all, as, as Steve pointed out this, and Rian pointed out this as well, the strategic dispersal of the ME value-creating activities, GVC, global, uh, to different locations, there's a shift from trade and goods where you made an entire good in a location to actually very, very increasingly narrow activities, which are done in locations in, in, in incredibly in, in micro geographic locations. So cities and uh, the areas of cities are becoming increasingly important and connected to each other. This le leads to some questions that Steve alluded to about how much uh, does this affect resilience? because uh, we had this highly finely tuned machine uh, of a global economy based upon connectivity between all, all these different nodes. Uh, but when there is a disruption, then we get a tremendous cascading effect all around the world. And is this going to lead to a change? How do managers react to this? Uh, it, it, do they give up all the benefits of specialization, uh, super specialization that we have seen or uh, and go backwards uh, or do they work out different means of redundancy that, that, that Steve mentioned. The control of knowledge intensive intangibles, of course, is, is the key source. Ultimately, uh, what do firms do? Again, again uh, connected to what Steve said, firms can get rid of low value creating activities that focus increasingly on where value is. Value is the intangible. That's what you want to keep control about. Uh, Therefore, you don't need to own, you don't need to control lots and lots of tangibles. <laughs> There's a rapid migration of value away, uh, value away from those tangibles, and you can give them away to other firms without too much worry. And finally, of course, uh, firms need to engage. Multinational MEs need to engage with EMEs. Uh, uh, Gwen pointed out this in her opening remarks as the EMEs. So these uh, Western, Japanese, uh, advanced country multinationals need to focus on these EMEs as collaborators, specializing in complementary activity. That, that uh, they just think about strategic questions arising for that as competitors in global markets, because many of these EMEs are also rapidly catching up and competing as well. And of course, all both of these concerns are subject to geopolitical realities. But for example, we have Western government bans on some Chinese firms like Huawei. And this, of course, is going to have cascading effects on all the managerial decisions as to who do you work, who are your partners, because you're going to be impinged if your partners are banned uh, from uh, large contracts, that's going to affect your business. So, so you need to factor that into your global strategy. Okay, so I'm going to stop here, but basically exhort the junior scholars in the audience to say to 
say that uh, the future is, is incredible. You have enormous opportunities for research. I look forward to seeing the work that you do. Beautiful. Um, next, we have uh, Ben. All right, thank you, Ben. Let me share my screen here. Yeah. Yes, I can see it very well. All right, thank you. Well, uh, thank you for having me here for this uh, very interesting uh, discussion. It's great to see some old friends and some new names uh, as well. Um, I think, um, you know, Ram's talk, um, you know, transition us very smoothly from our discussion on the, you know, the knowledge part, the cooperation part, the organization part to the context of uh, international business of global strategy. So I'm going to spend a few minutes to talk about institutions, is the institutional environment. So for the past 20, 20, 20, 30 years, we have seen the blossom of research uh, on institutional environment, uh, mainly about how the international uh, institutional environment would impact uh, uh, firm uh, strategies and activities. Uh, so if we look into the literature, you know, the foundational work, uh, two names that are cited most, <laughs> probably. Um, one is uh, not work um, about the, um, you know, defining institutions. And also uh, Scott 1995, you know, both are very frequently cited in, in research uh, in global strategy when it comes to institutions. Now, of course, you know, Scott's book about institutions, you know, that was cited you know, over 20,000 times. <laughs> And uh, now it's also won the Nobel Memorial um, Prize for his work on institutions. So when we talk about institutions, we're talking about the rules of the game in a society, you know, to, to cite uh, North's definition. Now, we have, uh, our field, you know, has accumulated uh, knowledge about the definition of uh, institutions, you know, what they are, the specific dimensions, depending on the uh, theoretical perspective, whether we're talking about organizational institutionalism or we're talking about institutional uh, economics, you know, we have different ways to look at the dimensions of institutions. We're talking you know, based on Scott, you know, we have the, the regulative, the, the cognitive, the normative pillars, uh, based on the, the theme of the uh, of North work, you know, we have the formal informal institutions. And very often we are talking about the institutional distance. You know, Kostova, Tatiana Kostova did a lot of work there and has been very widely studied as well. Um, so over the past 20 years or so, uh, institutional distance, as you can see the figures, the, the small figures I put at the bottom. Uh, so we have seen um, a very fast uh, development in terms of our understanding of the in institutional environment. Now, one is about institutional complexity. So we have recognized that institutions are at different levels. Actually, even in those original work, um, this has been uh, acknowledged, but it's just empirical work that has not really followed up, uh, you know, caught up um, uh, timely. We have also recognized the local, local level uh, uh, institutions, you know, for large countries like China and India, of course, institutions can vary um, dramatically within a country, but even for small countries like uh, Vietnam, uh, we could see institutional variation across countries, uh, within the country. So the subnational heterogeneity has been recognized and studied. 
Um, the, the next part, you know, under the institutional complexity um, uh, subtitle, as you can see on the screen, is institutional polycentrism. Um, the person who, I don't know, Ostrom, you know, I just have to mention her name. <laughs> you know, she's a Nobel Prize winner and uh, she was a uh, faculty member here at Indiana University. Um, I have to mention her name, not just because she's from Indiana, also because of her work uh, there. You know, in her work, and also after she won the Nobel Prize, you know, she wrote an article for American uh, Economics Review talking about the polycentric governance for complex economic system. So basically discussing uh, the rule setting entities are actually spread out throughout the society, you know, different dimensions, uh, the complexity of uh, institutional, uh, of institutions. Uh, so in our management literature, we started to see the discussion about institutional complexity, institutional uh, polycentrism. You know, like in the work by uh, Bat, uh, um, Bat Gago and uh, Michael Hitt and Taya Miller, you know, my, several of my co-authors, uh, you know, started to look at the multiplicity um, and the substitution across different institutional dimensions. Uh, so when we talk about these dimensions, uh, very naturally, you know, we are going to discuss the, the influence, uh, the interaction, and also the influence across these different institutional dimensions. So in terms of the uh, institutional dynamism, we have started our work uh, along two, two lines or two themes. One is the overall evolution of institutions. This part, this, this theme of research is very much on uh, emerging economists, as uh, you know, several of our speakers have already mentioned, you know, talking about the stages and processes of pro-market reform. Very often, that's what we're talking about. Uh, and we have a lot of discussion about institutional void, how that would influence not only um, multinational firms' investment in those environments, uh, but also how firms from those countries um, escape that environment you know, to internationalize. So we're talking about institutional impact from both home and host countries. So that's what we've seen uh, so far. The other theme of the um, uh, dynamics of institutional environment is the internal dynamics uh, across different dimensions. This part, this theme actually is still quite thin. Um, you know, I have a paper talking about the micro uh, mechanisms, how entrepreneurs, how individuals could take advantage of the changes in the formal institution and then push for uh, evolution in the informal institutional part. Uh, but very few studies still uh, in that area. You know, on the screen, I put the, you know, the, the uh, firm strategies from activities that have been studied under the influence of institutional environment. Um, you know, my colleagues have already discussed a lot of that. I won't go into the details. So in terms of the future research, what we can see here, uh, one is to continue our study on complexity and dynamism. Uh, for formal versus informal uh, institutions, we have spent a lot of uh, attention on formal because, well, we can observe them, they're written, right? We can observe, the, observe them, we can measure, measure them, we can compare them. Uh, but at the same time, for informal institutions, um, it's hard to theorize and also it's hard to measure. 
And very often we uh, just equal uh, informal institution as cultural distance. Um, you know, we really need to move beyond that and also look at institutions as uh, portfolios, uh, as profiles rather than simply as uh, distance. I'm not, I'm not saying this uh, to um, uh, undervalue the contribution of institutional distance. That's a very well established uh, construct in the field and it has and it will continue to contribute to our understanding uh, about how the environment would influence a variety of uh, business activities. Actually, I included a figure here. This is a special issue by GSJ uh, that uh, several colleagues of mine and I did together. Uh, that was the last issue of 2021, I believe. And here, as you can see, we have many uh, uh, well-understood institutional uh, components, how that would influence a diversity of entrepreneurship uh, activities, uh, entrepreneurship-related activities from individuals, you know, up to the, you know, all types of uh, um, uh, issues related to this. Okay, let me come back to here. Now, the next one, of course, is something that uh, all the previous speakers have touched upon is about the digital the platform. And Rian also mentioned, you know, whether uh, location still matters. Uh, very interesting, although uh, on surface, it may seem like uh, everything is digital, you can go anywhere, do anything. But at the same time, we do have the digital protectionism. When it comes to competition, we're talking about liability of foreigners at the same time, liability of outsidership, right? Particularly if we're talking about um, uh, e-business is based on ecosystem, like Alibaba, like uh, Amazon. You know, Alibaba, um, you know, sometimes it's probably a little bit exaggeration, but almost single-handedly established the logistics system in China and also the credit system in China. Um, so their role, the co-evolution between businesses and institutions, you know, that part is something that we need to pay more attention to. And we're seeing faster and faster um, interaction between these two, but it's also very difficult. Um, well, that's something we need to work on in terms of how we theorize co-evolution, how we measure co-evolution. Um, so these are really important topics. The other two I just mentioned very briefly, one is institutional disruption. Um, with the pandemic that we are still in today, um, with uh, terrorism, you know, these are very, um, Valent events happening, uh, the war, you know, how all of this would impact institutions, would, it would disrupt the institutions where businesses operate and how they, how they respond to it. You know, how do companies exit uh, the timing of their decisions? Um, uh, I am working on a review, um, a literature review on violence conflict with uh, a colleague of mine. Um, and, you know, this is very much fragmented. We can borrow a lot of insights from other disciplines you know, for interdisciplinary work uh, to better understand the disruption of institutions. Uh, the last one is about the human element. Anu also mentioned the, the, the um, uh, you know, the social constructionist view. Uh, yes, you know, we make decisions, you know, people, human make decisions. So the heteroneity in terms of people's understanding, executives' understanding and sense-making of institutions, of institutional evolution, that's what drives uh, the decision-making part. So we really need to pay more attention to the micro foundation of strategic decision-making in this context. 
but of course, you know, we human, we bear the consequences <laughs> of any strategic decisions uh, made by multinational farms. So that's the part, you know, uh, for example, I put CSR, CSIR, you know, irresponsible behavior. Where do you allocate? Where do you uh, transfer those not so advanced technology uh, that may create, let's say, uh, environmental pollution, right? Uh, institutional environment, the, the formal regulation definitely, definitely matters, but the individual level, you know, like a paper I'm working with my co-authors, which is about, well, do you want to pollute your home country? Right? You know, as the executive, there will be some decision to make. Um, well, I think I'm going to stop here. I've taken too much time. Well, thank you uh, for listening to me. Thank you, Dan. This is excellent. And you have uh, introduced to our younger uh, audience uh, one of my intellectual heroes. So uh, I put the wiki uh, link uh, to uh, Professor Eleanor Armstrong. Uh, feel free to tap on it. Okay, next we have Alvaro. Take it away. Well, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> Thank you, Gwen, for, for organizing this. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining. And thank you, the strategy uh, division, for uh, organizing the series of uh, events. I think this is great. And thank you, all my uh, friends at USDA, for joining me here. Uh, what I'm going to do is uh, build on what Dan has uh, introduced, uh, which is the notion of institutions, and then take it further with, if you want, uh, an idea, uh, which is the evolution of the role of the government. So let me take you in a little tour. Kind of uh, once upon a time, uh, and this is kind of uh, where we started the uh, institutions and global strategy. And this is what mostly uh, Dan has explained very well. The idea here and uh, the government plays, if you want an indirect role in uh, influencing global strategy. It was a story of the government in the background in which, uh, yes, institutions, both formal uh, institutions, the one rules, regulations, laws, and then informal, and there I will just add uh, the importance of culture, uh, were driving how we understood uh, global strategy and the, the idea that managers will basically think about and differences across countries and then select countries that were closer in psychic distance and then select entry modes that were easier to um, use in, their, in order to transfer, <clears throat> sorry, the knowledge, the resources they had. The idea here was uh, the government provided to some extent or the influence of the government on the context they uh, created constraints on the ability of companies to enter. It was literally the argument coming from uh, mostly work uh, from the World Bank uh, with the idea and especially economists, the idea that uh, good pro-market institutions are fantastic for countries and therefore uh, governments should try to promote this and that led to uh, the deregulation, the liberalization of uh, countries. That's, we're talking about the 1990s, 1980s. And that was uh, the beginning of what we now call the golden era of uh, globalization. So here, the government is kind of in the background. It's, uh, yes, yes, provide nice institutions, support market transactions, and uh, go, companies are going to do very well. From there, it seems, uh, in my opinion, that we have evolved into uh, a slightly different story when we started analyzing emerging markets. And there the idea was, yes, and uh, this is nice. Uh, why emerging markets? Uh, they are interesting. They are uh, joining, if you want, uh, 
global business. They are becoming a really good places to do business, not only because uh, they have low cost uh, factors of production, uh, mostly the story of uh, why don't you go to an emerging market? Look, uh, you can exploit uh, lots of low cost labor, you can exploit natural resources, you can take advantage of uh, those location uh, conditions. But also, all of a sudden, these are countries that start to grow and they become, uh, to some extent, uh, interesting places to start investing to sell there. And here it's kind of, look, this is fantastic. What about the role of the government? So here it was kind of a tricky situation in which, on the one hand, governments were trying to attract the foreign investments. On the other hand, the institutions, the rules, norms of regulation, the existence of corruption, the existence of uh, what in many cases were non-democratic systems in which uh, managers were not really used to operating, started to add some challenges to operations. So all of a sudden, the government takes a much more active role in determining uh, what companies can do. Uh, and uh, here we end up with, if you want, a divergence of uh, arguments and theories in terms of, yes, and the context is going to help. Uh, and because in some cases the context is so difficult, some companies are going to out-innovate others. The frugal innovation story, which then became the reverse innovation. And on the other hand, this is a really difficult context to operate. So now we have the idea of escape internationalization in which some of the companies, domestic companies, decide that, look, I'd rather go to other places in which I have more supportive governments and let me just invest abroad. So we have an evolution from the government as a background in which they are just providing support for institutions to the government acting in a dual role. Yes, on the one hand, uh, it's going to be a, a supportive government. On the other hand, some, in some cases, they can't really do much support and companies start uh, internationalizing in different ways. And then, uh, to some extent, uh, we have uh, rediscovered the importance of governments. And this is uh, what I call a political global strategy in which now governments do play a much more active role. We understand governments as a key determinants of the strategy of companies, in many cases influenced by our understanding of emerging markets, but also now partly influenced by what happened throughout the recent crisis in which governments, both in emerging and advanced economies, took a much more active role, which was not expected from the idea that uh, governments should be back, background and just provide supporting institutions and it started helping companies uh, go through the crisis and in some cases internationalize. So now we have uh, a much more direct uh, influence of the government on the global strategy of companies uh, directly through subsidies, uh, in many cases diplomatic support. Uh, you go together with the government and meet uh, the president of the country and you have these delegations with managers that can meet presidents and that facilitates investments. And uh, now we have uh, the discussion of state-owned multinationals, which uh, Gabriel is going to go in much more detail. And here the idea is now all of a sudden the government can be a source of advantage. It's not just background, but it's directly going to help in some cases companies internationalize. In some cases it's going to be indirectly through support at home, subsidies, uh, push forward towards uh, innovation, which is uh, ideas that uh, Anu and uh, Ram were discussing before, in which all of a sudden we have 
a new role for the government in global strategy, a much more active uh, actor, and not only through uh, state-owned companies, which they own, but also helping private companies go abroad. So in a sense, and this is a, if you want the idea, I'd like everybody to remember, to some extent, and there is this big evolution, the strategy on the role of government and how we understand governments, uh, starting with institutions, background, and this is uh, something that is going to support companies with the role of uh, differences across countries. There is also the informal institutions in terms of culture towards, uh, well, it might have a dual uh, influence here. In some cases, it's going to be supportive. In other cases, it's going to be a problem because it doesn't work well. And now towards a much more uh, direct influence of the government on global strategy and uh, how companies compete on a global basis because they have the help of governments. And that's it. Thank you very much. I look forward to the discussion. Thank you, Alvaro. All right, Gabriel, are you ready? Um, yes, I am. Um, Take it home just, for us. Yep, let me see. Okay, um, are my slides up? Perfect. Okay, good, thank you. Um, and and thank you for, uh, for organizing this. Um, and uh, in many ways, it's it's always very nice to to be sort of the the last presenter because I'm I'm truly standing on very solid shoulders, and uh, you know all I need to do is fill in some some gaps and uh, and the particular gap I'm going to uh, to fill in uh, was briefly introduced by uh, Alvaro, and that is state-owned uh, enterprises, and um, in. In, in many ways, this is a, a tale of, uh, well, it's a, a matter of two tales of um, um, multinational enterprises. Now, um, state-owned companies have been around for, for quite some, some time, uh, centuries in fact, but not many of them were uh, multinationals. Um, but um, over the last century, we, we, we saw a, uh, an increasing number of, um, of uh, state-owned multinational companies, in other words, companies that, that operate in, um, in more than uh, um, one country. And if you take a, um, uh, a good look back in history, um, there were really sort of two types of uh, state-owned companies uh, that were multinationals. Uh, in the West, there were um, mainly large inefficient dinosaurs that, that were there in order to secure national interests, uh, to, to uh, provide employment, perhaps to take care of some, some, some regional issues in, in, in the country. And basically they, they were there because um, private enterprise uh, were not interested in, in, uh, in, in doing that, those, the, um, uh, those activities. Uh, elsewhere in, in the world, um, they, they were virtually non-existent, uh, apart from perhaps some national resource um, state-owned multinationals. It's not that there were no uh, state-owned companies, it was just that they were not multinationals um, and, or very few of them. Um, the perspective on, on, on multinationals uh, back then, um, that means uh, throughout the 70s and well into the 80s and, and early 1990s was that, that uh, these companies were really due to misguided policies. Uh, 
protectionistic uh, policies, uh, ideology that favored um, uh, collective uh, ownership uh, and particularly state ownership, uh, and or that the, at best they were sort of second best solutions uh, to uh, solve uh, a range of uh, more political rather than economic uh, goals. And, and, uh, and most of the time, and uh, at least um, uh, scholars that, uh, that were interested in, in, in business and economics were, were really not uh, very interested in, in looking at these companies because they, they could not be explained through their models, I think. Uh, Alan Rugman, uh, one of the, 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 the uh, uh, founding fathers of internalization theory, I think, uh, at some point called them purely uh, political uh, animals. Uh, so there was sort of, um, they, they were not aligned with sort of the way that we uh, we typically uh, thought in international business and in uh, in uh, global strategy uh, research. Uh, but that changed, and that changed uh, throughout the uh, the eighties and towards what. Uh, became sort of the end of history, as uh, Fukuyama uh, put it um, in the 1990s. Uh, in the West, you saw a, a wave of uh, privatization and then also the emergence of a new type of um, state-owned companies, uh, so-called hybrids that were uh, partially um, owned um, by the state, but also uh, partly privately owned. They were listed on stock companies. Um, and And... And those companies um, were um, were different. They they worked differently. They looked differently. Uh, they um, uh, they had uh, different uh, different goals than their uh, uh, ancestors. Um, and these uh, hybrid state-owned multinationals, uh, those that came from the West, largely uh, seem to behave similarly to private ones. Actually, some of them um, even thrived on on the opportunity to uh, to internationalize and and uh, and 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 gained um, um, learning uh, effects um, uh, from uh, from that. Uh, so growing out of their home countries uh, was good for them because they uh, they picked up uh, new competences and also exposed to uh, the uh, the um, disciplinary effects of uh, of meeting uh, competition um, uh, so that was good uh, uh, for those companies um, you had a parallel sort of, uh, tale in um, but different one in uh, in the large emerging markets and uh, and in the emerging countries uh, generally, uh, and and that is of the uh, the the, uh, the emergence of um, um, emerging market multinationals uh, with very large pockets, with uh, a certain appetite for uh, taking risk and and for glow, uh, growing quite rapidly through uh, strategic acquisitions um, in uh, in the West. And these uh, companies were uh, a different breed, and their behavior. Uh, much more aligned with um, ho um, home country goals and and the particular institutional context uh, that they uh, came from, but uh, um, and and that also resulted in in other ways of doing things. If they were not they were not sort of um, uh, mimicking uh, the um, the strategies of uh, Western multinational companies like their uh, uh, brothers and sisters. 
uh, state-owned companies were doing in those countries, but rather pursuing um, other types of strategies. For example, much more interested in engaging in, uh, in joint ventures to, uh, to secure legitimacy wherever they, uh, uh, they went. Um, now, uh, looking forward, um, state-owned multinationals um, are and will be uh, all over the place. They, 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 uh, they no longer serve the, uh, um, the exception, uh, but rather there will be just um, uh, many firms among uh, a larger, even larger pool of, uh, of firms. And in the West, we also see so the, the um, or likely see the reemergence of um, um, state-owned multinationals that are not just um, hybrid state-owned multinationals that have some state ownership, but otherwise behave just like uh, multinational companies, but uh, that um, are um, markedly uh, different because uh, they, uh, uh, um, they take on um, domestic interests, uh, national interests much more seriously. Um, this is partly driven by a new geopolitical uh, situation um, that, for example, um, um, again, um, uh, ask the question of whether national interests or, for that matter, resilience, security, and so forth is uh, more important or equally important as efficiency considerations uh, um, uh, moving forward. Now, the way that we are going to understand these companies require a different approach than, uh, than, than so far. Uh, the, uh, and I think that you'll see that research is going to be uh, rather eclectic, uh, at least initially, uh, with um, uh, blended uh, frameworks, uh, with some uh, economic factors in them, some political factors in them, and some institutional uh, factors uh, in them, in order to, to sort out what, what type of behaviors we could expect from, uh, uh, from um, uh, these state-owned multinationals. Um, there will be a, an increased interest in uh, in the different contexts, both home countries and host country contexts. There will be um, a much more um, uh, advanced and, and and nuanced discussion of uh, the goals these companies have, um, not just of financial but also um, socioeconomic goals, uh, political goals, uh, industry industry policy uh, goals, and and uh, etc. Um, so all in all, uh, a very fertile ground for um, for uh, new research. So um, uh, just uh, start digging uh, on it. And with that, I'll uh, I'll stop and open up for a more general discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Gabriel. All right. So now we have um, scheduled uh, enough time to have two forms of engagement. One is to have uh, your Q&A. Um, I have collected three from the chat, but if you want to continue to put them in there, um, because the second form would be a breakout room. Um, it, we're gonna simulate more kind of like meet to the editors type of environment, and I will uh, randomly uh, break people into uh, smaller groups uh, so you can have uh, more direct interaction. Um, the three questions that I've collected, I'm going to ask, um, the person who raised the question, uh, because you may need some um, 
back and forth clarification uh, so that you know uh, exactly what you're posing to the panelists and panelists can get a better understanding of what the essence of uh, the question is. So first I'm going to ask Bruce uh, Kibler, would you like to uh, turn on your camera and ask your question? Is Bruce still here? looking for the participant list. Okay, well, I am going to read that question from the chat. So panelists, be ready. Uh, you can interpret the question um, more of your style. Uh, this comes from a discussion where I was just thinking in general, right? So in June, we're gonna have this debate and I would like to get these panelists a first look at this question. Do we need a new theory of the quote unquote international firm. And Bruce responded, oh, not just a new theory, but a new basis of economic thought and economic development, which is more holistic and real in its nature, question mark. So panelists, do we need a new theory? Shall I give it a start? Absolutely, um, and 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 I, I'm well. I, I will warn you. I'm going to be nuanced, which is maybe boring, but the safe way to go, maybe. So I'm I'm on the fence a little bit, right? So I think um, we do not need a new theory for all global companies or for all global strategic activity, um, because some maybe even much of this can still be explained with the models we have maybe with smaller adaptations to the models we already have but maybe for some observations or for some phenomena we might need um, real contextualizations and therefore more drastically reformed or reworked theories um, and maybe if i understand the comment of bruce correctly so if he says it complete new economic reality, right? Uh, then I'm, I'm thinking maybe part of this idea for, or, or the, yeah, our need for new theory is related to that companies don't only have um, financial or growth related goals. So if indeed we require from companies that they play a role in geopolitical reality of today or in the global challenges and, and climate change issues, et cetera, then maybe for those kind of goals, we do need new theories. So that's my first uh, reaction on that. All right, a nuanced look. Yes, Rob? One of the problems here is uh, very often the word theory is bandied about rather loosely. Uh, and uh, I think there's a lot of confusion about what's a theory and what's a model and what's a, you know, a different aspect, what's a hypothesis. Uh, there, there are different, different levels uh, of looking at this. I think obviously we don't need a new theory because uh, we've, had, we've had the idea of cross-institutional competition for, you know, since the beginning of time. Institutions have always competed with each other. Uh, the joint stock company is not something that was God-given or created uh, out of uh, some uh, government fiat but uh, it's something that competed. I mean, in the 19th century, we had numerous different forms of business organization. And uh, by the 20th century, the Georgetown company emerged as the, as the victor, as the most successful of the organizational arrangements in terms of dealing with risk and value creation. As we go forward, obviously the, uh, the world is changing, technology is changing, uh, geopolitical rivalries are changing. 
but at the end of the day, uh, the, the, the reality of theoretical uh, lens of institutional competition as performed by people like North uh, will continue. So there's, uh, there's really no need for a new theory. Uh, real, empirical realities, uh, geopolitical realities uh, will change. And that's going to lead to uh, different outcomes. We'll see different outcomes. That doesn't mean we have different theories. It's simply different outcomes, which come out of fundamentally the same, same theoretical uh, framework. Thank you, Ram. Um, any more perspectives you would like to chime in? Gabriel, I see you raise uh, your hand. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's an interesting question, given that um, uh, together with Irina Surdu and uh, Henry Greve, last year, uh, we got a, um, an article out in GIPS called Back to Basics, um, which is uh, simply a call for taking the, the theories that they already have um, uh, much more seriously and actually use them uh, and, uh, rather than sort of moving from, jumping from one, one theory to the other, just because if we encounter new contexts and, and, and the contexts that we already know are slightly changing. Uh, now, it's, uh, it, 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 it is absurd, the idea that, you know, that uh, everything needs to be uh, understood and, and, uh, and described in detail uh, 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 at all times. Now, that's not the purpose of theory. Theory is supposed to be fairly general, uh, fairly universal, um, and uh, and and also uh, we stand the uh, time uh, as as such. So um, I I line uh, line up with Ram here that we uh, we we don't really need necessarily um, so so much of new theory. Uh, given sort of a proper definition of what the theory is. We may, of course, want to have and, and be open for uh, various types of frameworks and, and, and models to uh, get a good grip of things. But you know, let's, uh, let's find, well, let's develop and fine tune the, the theories that we already have uh, and rather than ditch them. Um, uh, generally, uh, I, uh, uh, I would urge um, particularly you young scholars out there today. Okie doke. Um, I'm so, going to put that reference to uh, the back to basics in GIFs uh, in the chat, just a moment. Uh, do we have one more comment and I'll move to uh, John Dillard. Uh, I see John is still in the virtual room. Oh, two more hands. Okay, no, Alvaro yes. and Anu. Oh, sorry. Uh, let's, so John, get your question ready. Uh, Alvaro, please. Thank you. Um, one way to understand this is, do we need new theories? It depends who you ask. Uh, if you already developed a theory, of course, you are going to say, no, we don't need new theories. My theory is good enough. If you have not developed your theory, you want to make a contribution. I need a new theory. If you have been in the field long enough, uh, you realize uh, a good theory explains a lot. Uh, what we may need is the variations and the sophistication and introduction of uh, new arguments that relax some of the assumptions uh, rather than a completely new theory. And then uh, that goes with uh, the comment of uh, what is theory and there I will separate theory with capital T and theory with lower T, with lower case. Capital T theories explain the, the behavior of companies in general. And for those, we have very few of them. Lowercase theories are pretty much explanations of behavior. Uh, 
we call them models uh, in other uh, occasions. Uh, and for those, we have lots of them. And of course, if you want to make a contribution to the literature, we usually uh, expect you to do some new variation on the model. And uh, yes, call it if you want theory. I will call it theory with a lowercase. Thank you, Alvaro. Uh, so Anu and then Dan. Okay, so I, I agree with what Gabe was saying about, you know, theories are much broader. And you can think about how you extend them. I liked Alvaro's point about relaxing assumptions. When actually, when Rob and I were talking about the knowledge-based view, uh, you know, we debated a lot about whether it is relevant anymore. And for example, one of the things we talked about is how can it factor in AI if the firm uses AI rather than individuals to really create knowledge, right? And it would mean relaxing some of the assumptions that are there in the KBV, like, Alvaro talks about, but I don't think it necessarily means creating an entirely new theory. And I know I'm not talking about the firm per se, but I'm trying to subscribe it within those boundaries of knowledge. So I think there's definitely extensions, um, there's amendments, but I don't know if there's a new theory um, that's needed. Okay, then. Uh, yeah, I'll be very brief. I um, I agree with what my colleagues just shared. Uh, at the same time, uh, since Bruce is not here, so I just want to take the liberty of interpreting the question. But one thing is, I think that's a very worthwhile question to raise. And I think this, this type of question uh, needs to be raised uh, at different points, particularly when we have a very, very uh, rapidly evolving phenomenon in, in front of our eyes. So I think that's a very worthwhile, uh, although our you know uh, answers could maybe a bit different there. At the same time, in terms of broadening, um, to broaden the, this question a bit, um, I, I don't know what the Bruce is talking about, uh, not only just theory, just in terms of the theme of research, for example, entry mode. You know, we're talking about this, uh, you know, those different types of entry modes in the context of what, of where we are today with digital business. We do need to take another look at the intervals. Does this still make sense, you know, to use that to study the the uh, I businesses or E businesses today? You know, that's the question mark. But when it comes to the theories, the causal relationship that the literature has put in place, yeah, I agree with my colleagues. We need to look at that first to see how we relax assumptions, whether we can still uh, enrich our theories before rushing, before you know, rushing to let's say we have a new one there. All right. Okay, so um, John Thiliart, would you like to ask uh, your question? Uh, yes. I think Steve has something to add. And oh, I'll... sorry, sorry. Uh, go ahead. All right, I, I, it's hard not to weigh in on something as broad as do we need a new theory. Um, one thing that occurs to me is that um, speaking to the uh, uh, strategy um, division that I think that uh, some of the questions that were raised uh, could go back to what I see as the, um, the uh, predecessor in a way of international business and international strategy, which is uh, um, economic theory uh, to pick on Rom a little bit. But I think that the idea of abstracting international economics, trade theory, uh, foreign direct investment um, completely from the rest of the world has, has come close to reaching the end of its usefulness, uh, at least as predicting what, what firms might do under any given circumstance. So classic comparative advantage or neoclassical uh, models are just this, this idea that 
good good economic models are abstract and they work within themselves and then then get applied in general to the world. I think that we're really they're, they're losing a lot of power to predict what's going to happen. On the other hand, I think that this is really one of the reasons why strategy has been successful is that strategy largely comes out of economics of various sorts, but bringing in industrial uh, or, or organizational economics. And then um, it, it, it is incorporated um, behavioral issues, institutional issues, and so forth. So I think that actually uh, there are, as people have said, a lot of theoretical perspectives, whether grand theory or, or just conceptual models of what firms do and why they might do it within the strategy uh, realm. And I think that, uh, that these can be amended and modified and perhaps brought together. So instead of looking at them as alternatives to one another, we start looking at them as the, the smaller conceptual models as different, different views of the elephant. And we start trying to incorporate them together uh, I, back in the 90s, tried to incorporate transaction cost economics and resource-based model, uh, but uh, you go way beyond that today. Uh, so I would, I would say, I think uh, pure economics needs to start thinking that, that that's being pure is perhaps not as useful as it could be, but I think strategy as uh, sort of an inherently um, um, open, uh, discipline uh, has a lot of models and working with what we have and combining and recombining them, I think is uh, leaves a lot of options for new scholars. Thank you, Steve. Okay, so next question. Uh, John Billiard, would you like to ask your question? Thank you for showing the video. Yes, yes, thank you. I, I didn't anticipate having to be on camera, so I'm in Zoom dress, and I apologize for that. But um, this is something I've been thinking about lately, um, realizing that we're woefully behind Agenda 2030. Um, not enough action has been taken at the government level, uh, and, and the damage to the climate continues uh, at a steady pace. But at the same time, we're seeing more and more companies, especially global firms, realizing that it's to their best advantage to try to do something about, the, uh, about climate change and about addressing the SDGs and are actively engaging um, in those uh, actions and activities. So I'm, uh, it got me to wonder what role can global firms really play in this and, and are they capable of, of filling what is essentially a, a different form of institutional void? You know, it's a backwards institutional void, I guess that's not what it's, it's been created by uh, governments. Um, so it's, it's not, it, it's, 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 well, it's, I guess it is the same kind of institutional void that government, that, that companies could maybe take advantage of, but for a good social and environmental good. So I just was, I wanted to throw that out there. All right, so panelists, climate change. Well, let me take a quick shot at that. Um, there have actually been a number of papers, but I'm thinking of one that I was just looking at by um, Jonathan Dill and Jean Baudouin, who was in Global Strategy Journal, talking about um, partnerships among uh, multinationals and NGOs to provide um, services uh, 
that uh, would uh, in uh, developed countries be applied by or supplied by government, but in um, uh, less developed areas, uh, that the combination of NGOs and uh, multinationals were um, indeed filling some of these voids. So there's been some stuff written on that. Uh, I think that, and in John's particular question, you know, if you look at say the uh, global automotive industry, I mean, car companies look like they're going to cram electric vehicles down the throats of the uh, public, whether uh, we want it, and I would say I'm in favor of that or not, and not everybody is, but I, uh, you know, governments have made stabs in this direction, but I think uh, what, it, what it appears is going to happen is that we're going to face a, in the next 20 years an environment where most automobiles or other transportation uh, vehicles are going to be powered by electricity because the public to some extent demands it and because uh, there seems to be um, just a, a industry-wide decision to move in this direction. Um, I expect that what we'll see is governments backfilling and, and creating regulation to support this. So I would say companies can, multinationals can do this uh, but at the same time, I think we need to remember, and the NGOs are going to have to remember if, as they come into it, that uh, the companies are still going to have to find a way to profit. And again, I think the automotive companies think the way to profit for them is going to be to move in this electric vehicle direction. Uh, and that the social benefit to the environment is going to be, for them, a side effect. I, th I think uh, just to piggyback on what Steve said, I mean, I've, done, I've been doing work, a lot of work on uh, renewable energy for the last 15 years or so, uh, wind turbines, uh, solar, uh, solar panels, and so on and so forth. And one of the things we find is that, uh, I mean, two, two realities. First of all, uh, firms are more of the solution than the problem. I mean, firms definitely are. A lot of the innovation in these areas has come from firms. The second reality is that uh, it is actually uh, Emerging, mar emerging markets, uh, China and India, which are actually the site of a lot of uh, uh, installation, creation, innovation within these uh, renewable energy sectors. Uh, and so the, the notion that, that uh, which, I mean, uh, that people tend to have that, you know, all these advanced things come from Germany and Scandinavia and so on, it's just not true. I mean, the, uh, the vast majority of installation and creation of uh, renewable energy uh, models is actually happening in emerging markets. In the automotive sector, as Steve correctly pointed out, the largest single market, as all of us know for, for EVs is in fact China. Uh, India is following very rapidly that direction and so on. So uh, the, uh, uh, I, I think that uh, very often, and this, this is a, I think an unfortunate thing, uh, even business uh, academics tend to have this view uh, that uh, the leaders of multinational companies uh, uh, are entirely driven by the next quarter. Uh, and uh, there may be some uh, CEOs that are driven that way, but uh, I think it behooves us to remember that these companies are, 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 uh, are controlled and managed by extremely intelligent individuals that Recognize the global problems that they're that, that we, are, we are with, with we are within, and uh, are, uh, uh, are are trying to uh, work uh, to for the same objectives: uh, climate change issues, sustainability issues that all of us uh, consider important.
so, so I would say that um, indeed uh, um, global companies have a role to play, no matter what their motivation is. Um, so, so their motivation can partly be moral or it can be driven by stakeholder requirements or demands. Um, but in the end, I think many of them will start playing a role. And um, of course, it's interesting for us to also analyze whether to some extent their activities are you know, genuine or, or what you want to call it, or whether they are just a, a, a green curtain or... Um, but um, in, the, in the end, I think they have a role to play. I think they cooperate with NGOs for that, starting to learn to do that, but also with government. And a second point I wanted to make is that it's not just in emerging markets that there are voids in this regard, right? I think in many of our Western countries, governments don't do enough. I mean, in the Netherlands where I live, um, that's so, there's a lot of comments on the government not achieving the aims that they have promised. Uh, and we've also seen court rules, um, uh, for example, uh, well, not, not so recent, I think it was a year ago, uh, against Shell, uh, Royal Shell, that they have to um, decrease their global environmental footprint, right? So, so there are other players coming in to enforcing and pressuring global companies to play a role in solving these challenges and indeed therefore playing their role in, in, in helping societies or helping governments to, um, to achieve their aims. Yes, Alvaro, please. Thank you. Uh, going back to your point on the SDGs, I think they have made an impact, uh, mostly because they have brought attention to the issues. And now everybody uh, wants to adopt some of the logos uh, and they place them on their websites. And uh, it started the conversation, I think it's doing a very good, it's, it's having a lot of impact on uh, what we are thinking about. However, at the end of the day, and this I think is important, it's not just the multinationals, but all the companies that have a role. And I think it is us as consumers and the ones that I think are going to drive most of the change. Uh, yes, multinationals will have lots of, if you want, incentives to behave well. But if consumers don't care about it and they are not willing to pay more or to choose and the products that are more, if you want, sustainable, and we are going to have a limitation there. And also, there is also the story of the government. And the problems we have now are issues of uh, global commons and externalities. That requires coordination, and that's driven mostly going to be by governments, regulation, and the, it's not just the local government, but also coordination among governments in, uh, across all, all the countries. So yes, it's kind of, if you want, the story of the grand challenges. Uh, and the good thing is that, yes, we're making a, a change and multinationals are making changes, but I also think that uh, consumers especially and governments have to play a big role in, uh, in creating the incentives towards this change. Yes. All right. If I may. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, just picking on what, um, what um, Alvaro and Zaram and uh, Rian already started on. Um, it, it, this is a sort of a challenging and messy area. Uh, it, you know, we're really sort of into the realities of the second best, uh, at best, the second best. Uh, and I, I think a, a case in point here is working towards a more circular type of economy. Um, and um, 
And obviously, you know, you would, we would get real traction uh, if we were able to sort, of sort out uh, the issues in, in achieving um, circularity, closing the loop, so to speak, on the global level. And, and multinationals would be um, crucially important in this because they, they are the, the, the orchestrators of the, uh, the, the economic system um, um, currently. Uh, the problem is that um, most solutions that are related, for example, to circularity, many other sustainability issues too. Now, the, the real life solutions to those issues are found at the local level. And, and I think this and, uh, um, uh, is aligned with what Alvaro said, that, you know, that uh, there's a disconnect here between sort of the type of solutions that we would like to see and, and what we can actually achieve because you know, the practical solutions are found um, locally, the challenges are, uh, are global, and, and there, there is no simple way of coordinating across these, these levels. Uh, perhaps multinationals, I think, may play a particularly important role when solutions can be found at a more regional level, uh, where uh, there's a, they, they are able to, uh, to, to work with a, um, a limited number of political um, uh, uh, actors and consumers uh, at the same time as their actual sort of control and coordination reach uh, is still effective. Uh, and globally, that's seldom the case. Um, uh, but regionally, it could be. Thank you, Gabriel. Ram, please. I would like yeah. to uh, connect uh, what Oliver said to a question I see from Edith in the chat about new methodological approaches. I mean, Oliver made, Oliver made an excellent point that ultimately, uh, though uh, CEOs and top management team may be highly intelligent and very uh, positively motivated to act the right way, uh, ultimately, if customers don't, if consumers don't care, uh, there's going to be a powerful temptation to just give customers customers what they want. You know, customers say, "Well, I want I want something cheaper. I don't care what the hell how, how it comes here." Uh, that uh, then there's going to be uh, a temptation to 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 pro provide that. Uh, now uh, the question is, uh, do we know what new new methodological approaches do you think we need to move growth strategy research forward? And I think one thing that uh, I think is very underutilized in uh, the global strategy at this point in terms of data, in terms of mining data, in terms of utilizing it, especially in the context of uh, all of my distinguished colleagues talked about the behavioral aspects, which are so important, is uh, a revolution that's happened in the last 15 years, which is social media. Uh, now, social media offers a tremendous, uh, we know, a tremendous pathway towards forming uh, consumer preferences and guiding customer preferences in particular directions. I mean, it used to be the case in the 20th century, it was all advertising, right? you know, from me to you kind of thing. Increasingly, what we're seeing, of course, is that with social media, it's a two-way street. Yeah, one of the things I think that I encourage young scholars to look at, I mean, the MIS field is far ahead of us in this area, is uh, the fact that, uh, uh, I've got a colleague who's doing some work here in MIS actually looking at uh, corporate uh, sophistication, the utilization of social media. Okay, now in other words, you know, companies like Boeing and Lockheed and, uh, and IBM and so on, how sophisticated are they in terms of utilizing social media? 
And uh, these companies, they're multi-billion dollar companies, and it's incredible how unsophisticated they are. In fact, we, in fact many of them have no social media strategy at all. I mean, they, they, you know, you have these companies who are so smart in terms of innovation and patents and R&D and all the things they do, and they have no concept of how to, how to deal with approaching an 18-year-old. You know, basically, the 18-year-olds don't care about your bloody advertising. What they care about is what they see on Snapchat. Uh, and these guys have no Snapchat strategy. Uh, in fact, uh, of the Fortune 500 companies, 382 CEOs don't have a social media profile. They don't have one. Okay, so basically, you're a CEO and nobody, and you are your zero presence on social media. So this is a clear opportunity. I mean, you, you might be, you have an opportunity to influence customers. I mean, some there are some exceptions, like Elon Musk. I mean, Elon Musk is tremendously sophisticated in his utilization of social media. And he moves a, a lot of reasons why people like EVs. Why do young people like EVs? Well, because Elon Musk is, is approaching them and saying, listen, buy Tesla, right? So uh, single-handedly, he's moving preferences, the meter, in terms of EV adoption. EVs are cool. I want EVs, right? But this is something a company is not doing. So, so I'll stop here. Um, I see many questions in the chat, uh, but given our uh, setup and the time uh, restriction, uh, I would encourage uh, people to reach out to uh, the panelists with those specific questions. 